You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. In 2020, the Circulating Collectible Coin Redesign Act authorized the American Women Quarters Program. This four-year program celebrates the accomplishments and contributions made by women of the United States. Beginning in 2022 and continuing through 2025, the U.S. Mint is issuing up to five new reverse designs each year for a total of 20 designs. One woman will be honored on each coin, selected for her outstanding contributions to the United States. The obverse of each coin will maintain a likeness of George Washington, but it's different than the design that we are used to seeing. This portrait of George Washington was originally composed and sculpted by Laura Garden Frazier to mark George Washington's 200th birthday. This year, 2022, the first five quarters are being released with representations of Maya Angelou, writer, performer, and social activist, Sally Ride, the physicist and first American woman in space, Wilma Mankiller, activist and first woman elected principal chief of the Cherokee Nation, Anna Mae Wong, first Chinese film star in Hollywood, and Nina Otero Warren, the Hispanic New Mexican suffragist and reformer. Today, we're going to explore Nina Otero Warren's life in New Mexico during the early 20th century. She was a member of the Hispanic, commonly known as Hispano-Hispana elite of New Mexico, and she fought for women's suffrage and rights for Spanish speakers in New Mexico. The Nina Otero Warren Quarter is the fourth coin in the American Women Quarters program this year and represents the first Hispanic American on U.S. currency. The quarter features an image of Nino Otero Warren on the left, flanked by three yucca flowers, New Mexico's state flower. Emblazoned next to her image is Voto para Mujer, the Spanish version of the suffragist slogan, Votes for Women. Adelina Nina Otero Warren was born in the late 19th century into an extended Spanish land-owning family of New Mexico. She lived in New York City for a short time and worked in a settlement home while there. 
From 1915 to 1920, she was a tireless crusader for women's suffrage and was instrumental in the passage and ratification of the 19th Amendment in New Mexico. She was also the first Hispanic woman to run for the U.S. Congress. Otero Warren's life shows how traditional Hispano-New Mexican culture and modern American culture and institutions intersected in the early to mid-20th century. She was a woman who balanced and expanded her positions in Hispano and Anglo culture by using the power structures in New Mexico to her advantage. In many ways, Otero Warren was the prototypical progressive-era woman reformer. She was a suffragist, an educator, a member of numerous women's clubs, an advocate for public health and social welfare, and she was a writer. However, what makes Otero Warren stand out was her unique position as both a formal and informal mediator between Hispanos, Anglo-Americans, and Native Americans in the 20th century. Today, we'll dig into the fascinating life of Nina Otero Warren. I'm Elizabeth. And I'm Avril. And we are your historians for this episode of Dig. We want to thank all of our Patreon supporters, and especially our fabulous auger and excavator-level patrons. Hannah, Lauren, Colin, Edward, Iris, Susan, Denise, Agnes, Jesse, Karen, Maria, and Audrey. We can't thank you enough. Listener, if you're not yet a patron of the show, it's easy. Just go to patreon.com slash digpodcast to learn more. It's nighttime in a city at war, and a serial killer is stalking London's dive bars, jazz joints, and pitch black streets, hunting for women and committing murder so cruel that he's dubbed the Blackout Ripper. I'm historian Hallie Rubenhold, and in the new season of Bad Women, I'll take you back to World War II to explore the most shocking killings you've probably never heard of. Step into the dark with me for Bad Women, the Blackout Ripper. Listen to Bad Women wherever you get your podcasts. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and... What do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As always, we want to acknowledge that the work we do on this podcast is reliant on the excellent work of other historians. Today's episode draws primarily on the works of Elizabeth Salas, Kathleen Cahill, Charlotte Whaley, Ann Mossman, and Vicki Ruiz. Visit digpodcast.org to take a look at the full bibliography and show notes. Before New Mexico became the 47th state in 1912, it was a territory of the United States. Before that, New Mexico was part of northern Mexico, and before that, it was the northern part of New Spain, and 
Before that, it was the domain of the Pueblo, who built planned villages composed of large terrace buildings. The largest of these villages, Pueblo Bonito, in the Chaco Canyon of New Mexico, contained around 700 rooms in five stories and may have housed as many as 1,000 people. The area now known as New Mexico was also land traversed by the nomadic Apache people and Navajo peoples, who later adopted Pueblo people's style of farming. After the Spanish conquest of the region in the 16th century, New Spain became independent Mexico in 1821. However, the northern reaches of Mexico were sparsely populated and were coveted by Americans anxious to expand westward. Mexico attempted to develop the region of northern Mexico that we now know as Central and South Texas by offering land grants to Americans from the U.S. in exchange for bringing settlers to bolster the population in the area. By 1830, the Mexican government, realizing it was losing its grip grip on the region, annulled existing land contracts and barred future immigration from the United States. In 1835, Mexico's ruler, General Antonio López de Santa Ana, sent an army to Texas to impose central authority. This sparked alarm and revolt in Texas and led to the Texas War of Independence. After near defeat at the Alamo, Texas troops routed Santa Ana's forces at San Jacinto, and Mexico recognized Texas's independence in 1836. Texas was admitted as a U.S. state in 1845. In the United States, pro-slavery factions and the continuing ideology of Manifest Destiny pushed President James K. Polk to acquire California and further disputed lands in Texas. Polk sent an emissary to Mexico, offering to purchase California, which the Mexican government refused. At the same time, however, Polk directed American soldiers under Zachary Taylor to move into the disputed lands in Texas, making conflict with Mexican forces almost unavoidable. When fighting inevitably broke out, Polk stated that Mexico had, quote, shed blood upon American soil and called for a declaration of war, which became the the Mexican-American War. Spoiler alert, the U.S. won. The Mexican-American War uh, that lasted from 1846 to 1848 dramatically changed the geographical boundaries of the United States, as well as its demographics. The Treaty of Guadalupe Hildago that ended the Mexican-American War was signed in 1848 and ceded thousands of acres of northern Mexico to the United States. That land became New Mexico, Colorado, Arizona, Utah, Nevada, California, and parts of Texas. The treaty also defined the southern U.S. border as running along the Rio Grande River. The annexation of northern Mexico affected an estimated 100,000 Mexicans and indigenous peoples living in the area. The Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo laid out specific rights for former Mexican citizens. If they stayed and swore allegiance to the United States, their rights were supposed to be protected. Those rights included their claims to lands granted to their families, some dating back to the Spanish crown. The Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo did not apply to the quote-unquote uncivilized or barros Indians such as the Comanche and Apache living in the area. In fact, the treaty stipulated that the U.S. was supposed to police the new border to keep the Barbaros out of Mexico. 
the treaty and the U.S. did recognize the Spanish land grants of the quote-unquote civilized tribes, such as the Pueblos, but later, in the 1850s, backtracked on those rights. In the New Mexico Territory, Spanish speakers remained the predominant population. This allowed landed Spanish speakers to hold political power well into the 20th century. The dominance of Spanish speakers, however, also delayed New Mexico's statehood as prejudices against a place that had a large Spanish-speaking Catholic population becoming a state really held strong in the U.S. Congress. And so New Mexico remained a territory for well over 60 years. Between the years of 1845 to roughly the 1890s, immigration to the United States from Mexico was very low. Between 1848 and 1890, many Mexican citizens actually left the new U.S. territory to go and settle in Mexico due to either family ties or the racism they faced from their new American compatriots. In 1881, the railroad came to central New Mexico, which brought an influx of Anglos, or foreigners, essentially white people. Uh, This also brought drastic changes to the region. Furthermore, immigration for Mexico picked up around the 1890s, when southeastern mining, railroad, and agricultural industries experienced a boom in growth. It was during this period that Maria Adelina Isabel Emilia Otero was born on October 23, 1881, at La Constancia, the family hacienda near Los Lunas, New Mexico. Adelina, later mostly known as Nina, was born into two aristocratic Spanish New Mexican families. Her mother was Eloisa Aluna, whose family traced their roots back to the original Onate settlement of New Mexico in 1598. Eloisa was educated at a Catholic academy in New New York and returned to New Mexico during her teenage years. Adelina's father was Manuel B. Otero, whose father came to New Mexico from Spain in 1786 and whose reddish hair Nina inherited. He was educated at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. and Heidelberg University in, in Germany. His cousin was Miguel Antonio Otero II, who became the first native New Mexican territorial governor from 1897 to 1906. The Spanish-American identity, typically held by Hispanos like the Lunas and Oteros in New Mexico and Colorado, became a marker of class distinction in contrast to the term Mexican. However, this Hispano-Spanish-American identity did not reflect the true historical mixture of Native American, African, and European ancestry of the Spanish-speaking settlers who founded New Mexico, settlers whom New Mexicans had whitewashed into pure-blood Spaniards. Hispano-New Mexicans continued to embrace a Spanish identity, one rooted in a pioneer past separate from later Mexican immigrants well into the 20th century. Eloisa Luna and Manuel Otero had three children, Eduardo, Adelina, and Manuel. However, her idyllic childhood was shattered when her father was murdered when she was just two years old. Although the intercultural environment Adelina was born into was already firmly established before the railroad arrived in New Mexico, the railroad allowed Anglos to pour into the region in increasing numbers. 
these newcomers began to legally challenge the land grants that Hispano families, like the Lunas and Oteros, had held since the Spanish crown had granted them. Adelina's father, Manuel Otero, had inherited his father's share of the enormous Bartolome Baca land grant in the New Mexico Territory. The Otero's Estancia ranch was coveted land. James and Joel Whitney from Massachusetts bought a portion of the Baca land grant and then began to challenge the boundaries of the other land grant holders, including Manuel Otero. In 1883, James Whitney and a group of men arrived on the Otero Ranch and ran the Otero Overseer out of the ranch house. Whitney and his men then settled into the house and began drinking and playing poker. Manuel received news of the squatters and went to the ranch the next day with his brother-in-law and two vaqueros, or cowboys. He was met by Whitney, who shot him point-blank in the chest. Manuel's men shot Whitney three times, but he survived. Manuel was not so lucky, and he died. It took two years to bring Whitney to trial, and when tried, he was acquitted of Manuel's murder on the grounds of quote-unquote self-defense. Overwhelmingly, during this period, American courts were favoring Anglo challenges to Hispanic and Mexican land claims throughout the region that was annexed by the Mexican-American War. In New Mexico, more Hispanic land claims were overturned than upheld. But this was not just relegated to the New Mexico Territory. Tax rolls show that from 1900 to 1910, Spanish surnamed families lost more than 187,000 acres of land in two counties in South Texas. Over half of Spanish surnamed land was ceded to Anglos in Hidalgo County alone. And so the rights granted to Mexicans annexed in the Mexican-American War were slowly being chipped away. Numerous court cases overturned Spanish-Mexican land provisions that had been guaranteed in the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo and granted thousands of acres of land belonging to Mexicans to the newly arriving Anglos. Nina's mother, Eloisa, soon remarried Alfred Maurice A.M. Berger, who was from England. His family was originally from France by way of Italy and probably of Jewish heritage. Berger highlights both the intercultural mixture of people in the New Mexico Territory as well as the heterogeneity of the group known as Anglo in the Southwest. Berger arrived in New Mexico in 1880, and he had worked in various business enterprises. As evidenced by Eloisa's marriage to A.M. Berger, Manuel's murder at the hands of Anglos did not seem to prejudice the Luna family against Anglos in general. In fact, many cross-cultural marriages took place among the Hispano population in New Mexico as Anglo-Americans made significant inroads, both politically and economically, into New Mexico after the American takeover in 1848. The Lunas and other elite Hispano families had economic and political reasons to form connections with the Anglos. However, even though Adelina's new stepfather was highly educated, he was relatively poor compared to her mother. 
Adelina spent the majority of her childhood on the hacienda in Las Lunas. At the age of 13, the family moved to the more cosmopolitan Santa Fe, where Miguel Otero, Adelina's older cousin, was appointed governor. Otero appointed Berger as a clerk to the Judicial District Court in Santa Fe. Eventually, nine more brothers and sisters joined the household during her mother's second marriage. Nevertheless, Eloisa became active in Santa Fe's educational and social welfare concerns, reflecting her ability to hire domestic help to care for her children and her household. Eloisa was elected as chairman of the Board of Education in Santa Fe in the mid-1910s, laying a path that her daughter would soon follow. In 1892, Adelina was sent to St. Louis to attend the Maryville College of the Sacred Heart. It was primarily a Catholic finishing school. Although the wealthiest Spanish and Mexican families of New Mexico had been sending their children away to school for generations, primarily to Mexico City and then later to St. Louis, once the railroad reached the Southwest, it made travel much simpler. In 1897, Adelina's mother, Eloisa, wrote out her will, in which she bequeathed her first husband's lands to her two sons by that marriage and bequeathed her Luna family land holdings to her daughter, Adelina. Spanish-Mexican law had given women a legal identity and many rights. Some of these rights consisted of maintaining one's maiden name after marriage, property ownership within the marriage, and community property in case of divorce. Hispanas could buy and sell crops, animals, and material goods, as well as operate stores, enter into contracts, and file lawsuits in court as well as testify. Eloisa then followed a long history of Hispanas bequeathing the lands that they brought into a marriage to their daughters in accordance with Spanish and Mexican customs. And this, of course, was very different than the Anglo-U.S., you know, brought over by the English common law way of bequeathing everything to sons. However, women's rights were somewhat curtailed by statehood. The New Mexico Constitution, written in 1910, contained provisions defending the ethnic, cultural, and linguistic rights of Hispanic New Mexicans. However, Article 7, which proclaimed these rights, also limited the political rights of women and only allowed them to hold public offices related to schooling, such as superintendent, director, or member of boards of education. In 1908, Adelina married First Lieutenant Rossendy Warren, the commanding officer of the 5th U.S. Cavalry stationed at Fort Wingate. By all accounts, it was not a happy marriage. She did not enjoy the restrictive life of an Army officer's wife, and she missed her large family and friends in Santa Fe. She seemed to buck against the rules whenever she had a chance. For example, once after being expressly forbidden to ride her husband's stallion, she rode it anyway. While riding, the stallion reared back, hit Adelina's face, and broke her nose. However, restrictions as to her movements were probably not the only issues in Adelina's marriage. She also found out that her husband had another family in the Philippines. Uh, he had a common-law wife and two children. 
she ended up divorcing him after only two years of marriage. Even though she had justifiable cause, divorce was not acceptable to elite Hispano nor Anglo standards of respectability in early 20th century New Mexico. Adelina sidestepped any social ramifications due to her divorce by referring to herself as a widow. She also kept her married name and her birth name for the rest of her life, thus becoming Mrs. Nina Otero Warren. After the divorce, Nina Otero Warren traveled to New York City, ostensibly to keep house for one of her younger brothers, Luna Berger, who was attending medical school at Columbia University. While in New York, she volunteered her time at Anne Morgan's Colony Club. Anne Morgan was the youngest daughter of J.P. Morgan, i.e. one of the richest men in America at the time. Uh, Anne was a union activist. She was part of the Mink Brigade that attempted to shield striking garment workers in the 1909 uprising of 20,000 in New York City. She created the Colony Club, a residence for young women without family working in New York City, uh, essentially in the vein of settlement work. And at the time, settlement houses were a very important progressive era social welfare experiment that provided welfare needs to young working class women in an urban environment. Uh, Settlement houses were also a way for middle class educated women to engage with community building and activism. Otero Warren lived in New York City for two years, soaking in the city and working at Morgan Settlement Home. Unfortunately, her mother, Eloisa, died in 1914, prompting Otero Warren to return to New Mexico to care for the Luna estate, as well as her younger brothers and sisters. While Otero Warren was in New York, New Mexico became the 47th state admitted to the Union. Because New Mexico's state constitution denied voting rights to, quote, Indians not taxed, and this was very much like a lot of state constitutions, the majority of New Mexico's indigenous population was disenfranchised, including anyone living in the 19 Pueblos, the Apache Reservation, and the Navajo Reservation. And so this primarily left New Mexico's Hispanic and Anglo women to engage with the issue of women's suffrage. Across the nation, the National American Woman Suffrage Association, or NASA, were working to convince male state legislatures to amend their state constitutions and allow women to vote. Because of the high threshold the New Mexico Constitution had for any amendments to the Constitution, it was nearly impossible to move the state to the suffrage column. So the NASA strategy of gaining women's suffrage state by state was not a viable option for New Mexico. And for more information about this period of suffrage, you can dive into a few episodes that we've already produced uh, that will be linked in the show notes on the blog. Since changing the state constitution was practically out of the question, radical reformer Alice Paul's organization, the Congressional Union, or CU, with its focus on a national constitution amendment, held more promise for New Mexico's women than the NAUSA state-by-state plan. CU organizers started working in New Mexico in 1914, and they tapped into existing networks consisting of primarily Anglo women, such as the state's Women's Christian Temperance Union. However, Hispanas, for the most part, were not members of the Protestant WCTU. And so the CU quickly realized that if they wanted to organize New Mexico, they needed Hispana women on their side. 
educated, bilingual Hispanic women like Otero Warren were integral in leading suffrage work in former Mexican territories like New Mexico. In 1916, the CU organized a statewide convention to establish an official New Mexican branch of the CU, adopt a constitution, and elect state officers. Although Hispanas were highly visible at the conference, the majority of officers elected to the CU branch were Anglo women. However, Otero Warren was elected vice chair of the organization. And then the following year in 1917, when Sarah Reynolds stepped down as chair, Alice Paul personally tapped Otero Warren to take the position of state chair. Hispanas, such as Mona Abaca, who sold suffrage pins, and Aurora Lucero, who solicited subscriptions to the CU magazine The Suffragist, were deeply involved in the conference. Otero Warren's sisters Dolores and Rosina Berger worked as ushers at the event. Otero Warren and these four women, and many others like them, were proud of their Spanish heritage and reminded others of their descent from conquistadors. According to historian Kathleen Cahill, just as Anglo-Americans celebrated their ties to the American Revolution and to the Daughters of the Confederacy, Spanish-speaking women like Otero Warren retorted to the claim that Anglos were the only true Americans by insisting that their ancestors had also come from Europe and helped to settle the continent, a vision that rested on the dispossession of Native peoples. 1917 was a momentous year for Otero Warren. In addition to becoming chair of the New Mexico CU, she was also appointed interim superintendent of Santa Fe's public schools. The next year, 1918, she ran for election for the position and won. She held this position for 12 years until 1929. In her capacity as superintendent, she advocated for Spanish and English bilingual education and believed that public school curricula for New Mexico needed to incorporate the ethnic cultures and languages of the region. She particularly wanted to emphasize Spanish literacy and traditional artisan training such as weaving and tin metalwork. During World War I, she actively participated with women around the state in the Red Cross and the National Catholic War Council. She also joined the executive board of the New Mexico Federation of Women's Clubs and led the organization in planning its legislative program, which ended up focusing on the welfare of delinquent girls and the care of children. In 1919, Governor Octaviano A. Larrazzolo appointed her to the State Board of Health, and she was promptly elected its chair. She was then appointed to the State Board of Public Welfare and was again elected as chair of that board, too. Meanwhile, the 19th Amendment was making its way through Congress. On June 4, 1919, the Senate finally passed the amendment, which then sent the amendment to the states for ratification. Otero Warren and five Anglo women made up the New Mexico State Committee for Ratification of the Amendment. They sent letters to every member of the state legislature urging ratification. However, as the special session for ratification opened, passage was not a done deal. Rumors spread that Democrats in the legislature were responsible for the resistance to ratification, but there were some Republicans who were backing away, too. An ad was placed in the Santa Fe New Mexican newspaper reminding Republican legislatures of their pledge to approve the amendment. 
The ad alleged the Republicans in the state would become a, quote, howling joke if they aligned themselves with Southerners who were against suffrage because it would grant African-American women the right to vote. However, the ad did not chastise legislators in the spirit of universal social justice, but instead asked, quote, is the opposition afraid to give the ballot to the hundred or two Negro women resident in New Mexico? Or does it class all the womanhood of New Mexico on a par with the Negro woman of the South? The ad went on to say that if Republicans didn't ratify, they would be, quote, slapping the face of the splendid women of New Mexico. And so presumably Anglo and Hispana were the only, quote unquote, women of New Mexico in this ad. Diving headfirst into partisan politics, Otero Warren, whose family had long been Republican Party leaders, served as chair of the women's division of the Republican State Committee. During the ratification debate, Otero Warren and other Republican allies cajoled male legislators to vote for ratification. Most of this caucusing was done off the floor in closed-door sessions. Suffragists were successful, and New Mexico became the 32nd state to ratify the 19th Amendment. Alice Paul personally congratulated Otero Warren's splendid leadership in guiding New Mexico through the ratification process. However, the 19th Amendment's passage was stalled when one southern state after another did not ratify the amendment. The nationwide campaign for women's suffrage that had lasted decades came down to the votes of a single legislative chamber in Tennessee. A special legislative session was called Nashville to determine if the state would ratify the 19th Amendment. At first, voting ended with a tie. However, when another vote was called, a young legislator who had formerly voted no voted yes and brought the amendment over the finish line. Nevertheless, the 19th Amendment had come dangerously close to not being ratified. After ratification, suffrage organizations across the nation began transforming themselves into League of Women Voters groups. However, women of color, particularly black women, were well aware that they still had a very long journey towards equal citizenship. It wouldn't be until the passage of the 1965 Voting Rights Act that women of color universally would have the right to vote. In New Mexico, Otero Warren continued to be a major player in state politics. She was elected vice chair of the state Republican Party, and a number of other Hispanic women held key positions in the New Mexico Republican Party. They designed the GOP state platform and proposed, among others, an amendment that would allow women to hold any public office in the state, and not just those related to education. One Santa Fe New Mexican commentator said the platform was, quote, the most drastically progressive program since statehood. New Mexican voters approved the amendment that allowed women to hold any public office. Shortly thereafter, Otero Warren decided to run for Congress. In fact, both parties in New Mexico nominated two women, both of whom were Hispanic, to run for elections in 1922. These were some of the first women of color in the nation to run for offices after the passage of the 19th Amendment. 
Nationally, the Republican Party nominated three women to run for national offices, and Otero Warren became the first Hispanic woman to run for a U.S. congressional seat and the only woman of color running in a national election. Because of New Mexico's comparatively small population, the state only had one member of the U.S. House of Representatives. Therefore, when Otero Warren decided to run for that House representative seat, she was really aiming for an extremely influential position. Otero Warren handily defeated the Republican incumbent in the primary. She received 466 and a half votes to Montoya's 99 and a half votes. Otero Warren was known for being charismatic and newspapers touted her, quote, ease of manner for her vivid personality to say nothing of her red hair and for the sweet graciousness of manner seldom found except in convent bred women. She vowed to try to get New Mexico's communal land grants returned to their Hispano owners, overturning years of Anglo domination in the courts. She believed that if Hispanos owned their own lands, they would have the money to support education, child welfare reform, and pensions for teachers. Remember, Otero Warren was also the superintendent of Santa Fe schools during this time, and the education and support of Spanish-speaking children were one of her greatest concerns. Otero Warren's campaign promises called for the preservation of Hispanic culture and heritage while promoting the need to bolster forward-looking education, health care, and child welfare initiatives. She was insistent that election literature was printed in both Spanish and English. According to historian Elizabeth Salas, Otero Warren emphasized her Hispano heritage when she spoke in Spanish to New Mexicans. She called herself a native daughter, reminding voters that Hispanos were the earliest settlers of New Mexico. Otero Warren navigated the 1920s with one foot in the traditional Hispano way of life and another in the modern world of the new era. 1922 was not a great year for Republicans in New Mexico elections, and Otero Warren's campaign was a casualty of the trend that swept Democrats into office across the state. However, an old family feud between her and her cousin, the former governor Miguel Otero, also doomed Otero Warren's congressional hopes. With intent to harm her political career, Miguel Otero revealed that Otero Warren was not the respectable widow that she claimed to be, but was actually a divorcee. Gasp! Oh, the shame. The shame. Enraged, Otero Warren's brother Eduardo beat up Miguel Otero, which resulted in more negative press for Otero Warren's campaign. (laughs) As Democrats were swept into office across the state, news of her divorce made the election that much more dramatic and ultimately harmful to Otero Warren's congressional hopes. But even though she did not win the race, she did meet a woman who became her life partner for the next 30 years. Otero Warren met Mamie Metters while Metters was working as a volunteer for her congressional campaign. Although the intimate details of their lives together are unknown, they bought land together and lived on it in separate houses for the rest of their lives. They were always together and were referred to as las dos, or the two women. In the fall after her failed congressional run, Otero Warren was the first woman appointed in New Mexico to be the inspector of Indian schools. 
These schools were part of the American colonial system that took indigenous children away from their homes in the attempt to assimilate them into American society. The Santa Fe Indian School was one of the largest federally run Indian boarding schools in the country, and what Otero Warren found there was shameful. The school was severely overcrowded with children sharing towels, toothbrushes, and beds. The food preparation areas were fly-infested, and 46% of the children there suffered from trachoma, a highly contagious conjunctivitis which can cause blindness. Otero Warren immediately sent a scathing report to the Washington Commissioner of Indian Affairs requesting an investigation as well as an increased budget. Even though the conditions of the school were deplorable, Otello Warren fully supported the goal of assimilation for Indigenous people, even while she argued that Native students should be taught to appreciate their history and traditions. She also maintained that Christianity should be part of their schooling. According to Kathleen Cahill, Otero Warren approached Native people in New Mexico with a paternalism that she often exhibited towards poor Hispanics in the state, emphasizing their ignorance, especially women, who only needed to be shown the right way to do things for the community to prosper. She also believed that the Spanish conquest of New Mexico had been positive for Native people, claiming that Spain's was the most comprehensive humane, and effective Indian policy ever framed. So even after kind of believing all that, in speeches about Native American education, Otero Warren still emphasized the, quote, Indians are not a vanishing race, as many suppose. Uh, Otero Warren also advocated against sending Native children to boarding schools off of their reservations, and she sought better cooperation between Indigenous families and the schools. Although a staunch Republican in her early political life, she went on to work for the Roosevelt administration during the New Deal, becoming the Director of Literacy Education for the Civilian Conservation Corps in 1935. It was also during the 30s that she embarked on her role as a writer. In May 1931, she wrote My People for an issue of Survey Graphic with the theme of Mexicans in our midst, newest and oldest settlers of the Southwest. Other contributors to that issue included Ansel Adams, Diego Rivera, and Georgia O'Keeffe. Her book, Old Spain in Our Southwest, was published in 1936. In 1941, she was appointed by the Works Progress Administration as director of the Work Conference for Adult Teachers in Puerto Rico, helping to set up bilingual education programs for Puerto Rican children. She also organized a language program for U.S. soldiers at Bariquen Field, where officers attended Spanish language classes taught by teachers whom she had personally trained. Upon returning to New Mexico, she embarked on a new career with her life partner outside of politics. In 1947, at the age of 65, Otero Warren and her partner, Metters, started a real estate business in Santa Fe, Los Dos Realty and Insurance Company. Metters wrote insurance policies, while Otero Warren sold homes. And by all accounts, they were very successful. In 1951, Mamie Metters died, leaving Otero Warren grief-stricken. She continued their Los Dos business, working up until the day she died in 1965. She was 83 years old. 
Adelina Otero Warren is buried next to her beloved mother, Eloisa, and her stepfather, A.M. Berger, in the Rosario Cemetery in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Scholar Anne Massman argues that Otero Warren was well-positioned by her birth and her family's political and economic power to take on the role of an influential cultural broker, a position that was still unique for a woman of her time and place. Through her roles as suffragist, progressive educator, women's club member, public health and social welfare board member, and writer, she worked for formal and informal mediation between Hispanos, Anglo-Americans, and Indians. She was perhaps the most important Hispana woman of her generation. And in many ways, her Spanish heritage facilitated a kind of group identity that led to the Hispano elite's extensive participation in local and state politics and community organizations in New Mexico. Otero Warren offers us an opportunity to explore the impact that women of color had on the 20th century suffrage movement. Scholars like Kathleen Cahill and Marsha Jones, among others, are doing important work on this, but there's still a lot to be done. Otero Warren also helps us understand how Latino, like when pundits talk about the Latino vote, is not a monolithic entity. It wasn't in the 20th century, and it certainly isn't today. So that does it for our discussion of Adelina Otero Warren. And if you're interested in the upcoming American uh, Women Quarters, Quarters for 2023 are Bessie Coleman. She was the first African-American and first Native American women pilot. And Edith Kanakaole, Indigenous Hawaiian composer, custodian of Native cultures and traditions. Eleanor Roosevelt, first lady, author, and civil liberties advocate. Jovita Idar, Mexican-American journalist, activist, teacher, and suffragist, who my first article was on, and we have a we have some it's some stuff linked on the blog post. And then Maria Tallchief, America's first prima ballerina and member of the Native American Osage Nation. So thanks for listening. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, for however long that happens, Elon, YouTube, and Instagram at dig underscore history. For all of you educators out there, remember that we have free resources on the website, digpodcast.org, that include entire lesson plans and ideas for how to use our podcast in the classroom. Thanks so much for listening. Bye. Bye. This podcast was produced by the historians of Dig, Elizabeth Garner Masaryk, Sarah Hanley Cousins, Marissa Rhodes, and me, Averill Earls. Thanks for listening. Expended Spanish quote unquote Spanish land what uh expanded what is expended extended let's just say in extended yes thank you (laughs) it's like what is that supposed to be still you oh it shouldn't be sorry la razzolo sure la razzolo no I can't do it twice la razzolo Alfred Maurice A.M. Bergere I mean, I would say Berger. Okay. But I, I don't know. I don't know, actually. I don't know if I should be the one. <laughs> I don't know if I should be the one saying it. Huh? He's he was from England. England. So how would you say it if he's from England? I would probably still say it French because of the Normans, but we can say Berger. No, I, I, I honestly, I think we should go with what you say. That's fine. That's, I'm just making that up though. <laughs> Oh my god, I can't reach my keyboard because of this f***ing tent.
Oh my God. Do you I see me how I'm having to like go around it? In New Mexico. Oh, what? Don't fall asleep. I'm, well, I won't fall asleep. I'll just keep yawning. Kathleen Cahill. Ka how would you say that? Cahill? Cahill? I'd say Cahill. Cahill? Cahill's good too. Adelina spent the majority of her childhood on the hacienda in blah, blah, blah. trifling, good for nothing type of brother. <laughs>